Take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. And this evening we're looking at the 19th verse of this fourth chapter. And this is one of those well-known and well-loved verses that we find in the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is just rich with these types of things, these types of verses. And uh, because of that, because there are so many of those packed into this one little book, that Philippians has really become a great resource for the encouragement of Christian people, a source for troubled Christians. And really, that's what the little book was intended to be. It's a, it's a book of encouragement, but it's really more than just a collection of all those pithy little uh, statements that we find in it. Uh, you can go to the bookstore and you can find devotional books and you can find motivational books and perhaps they can give you a little bit of encouragement. But this book does so much more than that because it teaches us to approach the things that happen into our life with right thinking and to develop right lifestyles so that we're truly grounded in God's promises. And these sayings that we find in the book of Philippians are backed up by the facts. The, the facts of an undeniable uh, proof of God's providence over his people. And it's also backed up by the assurance of faith that we have in almighty creator. And I, I love to use the comment that I, that I spoke on, on Sunday during the message that God does not ask us for blind faith. And the reason that he doesn't is because he has demonstrated his love and his power every single day in our lives. So we're going to read just this one verse for our study, and I suppose I won't have you stand up tonight. I'll just read it to you, and then we'll go into the message. He, Paul says in verse 19, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us into this place tonight. And what a great verse that we have before us. And we can't really expound the depths of this in just one message tonight. But Lord, give us a little bit of understanding of what you'd have us to have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me remind you just a little bit of the background uh, to this verse. The Philippian church had been very faithful in support of Paul's ministry. And I hate to uh, make an assessment of the other churches that were founded by Paul and say that they were somewhat lax in this particular area of giving because we really don't know all of the circumstances that existed at the time. We don't know what kind of conditions that there were. And so there may be various reasons why they weren't as forthcoming as the Philippian church in the support of Paul's needs. But what we do know about this particular church is that they were very diligent about this, that when they knew where Paul was and when they were aware of his need, they were always faithful to send him something for his support. And so in the last part of this letter, Paul commends them for that support, while at the same time he's trying to teach them that whether or not they had actually sent him anything, that God was going to take care of him. And so we looked at the difficulty that Paul had of trying to teach them that as he's thanking them for their gift and commending them for their action, at the very same time he's trying to show them that he was totally dependent upon God. He wasn't destitute. And so if this particular church had not sent him an offering, then there was somebody else out there. There was some other way that God was going to provide for him and, and he would have whatever he needed from another source if God so chose. Now, I think that what Paul says here in the last part of this chapter is very rare 
among missionaries today. And I don't criticize missionaries because of this, but I think it would be extremely rare for us to receive a letter from a missionary, to receive a call from one who said, you know something, I really do appreciate the offerings that you've been sending me, but I really didn't need them. Uh, God's supplying all of my needs. Everything's just fine. And so you don't really need to send me any offerings. I've never had a call like that from a missionary. And I said, I'm not criticizing them for that because I know that the needs of the mission field are very great. But Paul just had this thing about him that he really did understand and really did believe deep down in his heart that that God was just going to take care of him in whatever way that he needed him. So we come to this verse, and I think that we find that Paul is again thanking them in his own way, and he's teaching them that as God had supplied his needs, that they would also supply the needs of this church. Now, they may think that if they continued to give sacrificially, that eventually they would run out of things, that their resources would be dried up, they'd be left out in the cold, and they simply would not have what they needed. But Paul, I think, is trying to teach them that one thing God does, he always replenishes the supply. There's never going to be a lack when you're a Christian because God takes care of our necessities. And I really do think that that's something that's missed by many Christians today because we are very much reserved about what we give to the Lord. And we think that uh, we have to hold something back because there simply has to be the provision for a rainy day. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen to us, and so our resources may get low, and, and if they do, we have no place that we can go to get help. And really, uh, we'll talk about that in just a, a little bit more in, in a moment, and we'll find out that many times what we do as God's people is that we live out of the wrong resources, out of the wrong storehouse, because we're depending so much on ourselves rather than on God. So this verse, Philippians 4.19, is really a, a promise for God's people. This is not Paul's wist, wishful or wistful type of, uh, of thinking where he just pats people on the back and just with a casual comment, he says, don't worry about things, you know, everything's going to work out, it's going to be all right. Now, what we have here are true words of God's assurance that are spoken under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we need to remember. Whenever we read the apostles' words, we need to understand that we are getting word from God. This is God speaking, and Paul's writing down what God would have him to write. Now, I want to examine the verse tonight by asking four questions. He says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. First question that we want to ask is who will provide? And I suppose that's the most important question, although it's one I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on tonight. And the reason that I'm not is I want you to look down at verse number 20 and you'll see the reason there because the study next time will be in verse number 20 where Paul says, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And when you see that there, now unto God and our Father be glory, you can just well imagine that I want to spend some time talking about this verse. So today I just finished up writing the fourth message on verse number 20. And uh, I almost wish that I could preach that tonight. I had such a good time thinking about reasons why that we need to give glory to God. But the answer to the question, of course, is who is going to provide for us? That's God. It's God the Father. Uh, he's the one who provides. And Paul gives the answer to this question in a very personally wonderful way because he says, my God. Now, not that he was just Paul's God alone, but he says this because 
Paul had that personal relationship with the Savior. Paul was not detached from God as if God was somewhere off in the universe, far, far away, and no way to get in touch with him and barely any notice that God would take of us. But Paul says, my God. And he says that because of the warmth and the comfort that he had in his own heart because he had God's personal assurance that he was with him. And you can just imagine how comforting that must have been to Paul. He's writing the letter from, from a prison cell. And the one that he lived for, the one that he surrendered his life to, the one that he'd given his all for, had personally assured him that he was going to take care of him. And so it was out of that treasure of knowledge that, that Paul had, that he had full confidence that God would be with these Philippian people in the same way that he was with them. Now, let me point out to you uh, two aspects of this part of it. Who will provide? And this is by no means comprehensive as we think about the glory of God or God the Father. And that's why I say I've already written four messages just to deal with that one verse. But why do we know that, that God will provide? Well, first we would have to look at the character of God. The character of God. And God's character is seen in creation. I refer back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus illustrated God's providential care, as he talked about the birds in the air and the lilies in the field and the grass that grows, and he says, none of them take thought for their provision because God takes care of the nourishment for each of those. Farmer goes out to sow his grain, and he has no control over the rain, and uh, he doesn't uh, have any control over how his crops are going to be watered. He has no power to make one seed that he plants germinate, much less the whole crop. And yet he trusts God's undertaking to provide what he needs when it is needed. Now there we're talking about a concept really of God's general welfare. And sometimes we call that God's common grace. But I don't think that Paul would be referring primarily to that aspect, even as sure and steadfast as God's general provision or his general welfare, welfare over the world is concerned. I think, as Paul, think that Paul is much more personal in this because he's thinking about the personal effects of God's provision. And especially, I believe, he's thinking about God's provision towards his chosen people. Now, if we look back into the Old Testament, we see that it's replete with miracle after miracle and provision after provision where God provided for his people in a very uncommon way. Now, tonight we don't have time to discuss all those miracles that we find in the book of Exodus and the things that happened in the wilderness wanderings, nor to talk about the conquest of Canaan and how God provided there, or in the kingdom age when uh, God protected the nation of Israel. God was always there for his people. Now, many times they failed him. And when they did fail, and there was a call for repentance, and God brought those people back, and when they devoted themselves uh, totally to God, God never failed to provide for Israel. And I think that Paul also is drawing on his own personal experience. He says, my God. And that's certainly a, a personal expression. Something was very dear to him. Now, sometimes I think that uh, that, that idea of my God is lost on us when we speak about God because we can get very academic about it. We can get into a study of the attributes of God and we can think about having all of our doctrines right and all of our theology right. And we can be very reverent towards the majesty of God. But when we speak in that kind of way, there's often not a sense that we're actually talking about our God, my God, in a very personal way. And we call the study of God theology. And that's 
actually what the word means. Theology means the study of God. But do you know that it's possible for you to study God and really not know anything about God? I mean, truly know who God is? You can spend a lot of time studying God. Roman Catholics have theology. Mormons have theology. Um, Jehovah Witnesses have theology. Buddhists have theology. Muslims have theology. And it's all essentially the same thing. It's the study of God. But the problem is they don't know anything about the real God. And I'm afraid that many times that we're guilty of talking about God like an academic exercise without really experiencing that he is my God. So Paul's using a very endearing term. And this is because he has that personal relationship and he has the experience. He was aware of the personal nature of God and his character. And again, he knew because of that character that, that God would provide for the Philippian people as well as he provided for him. And then how else do we know that God will provide? Well, next, because of the certainty of God. And here I mean just the full confidence that we have in God's promises. He says here, my God shall. And there's no reservation in that. I mean, there's no if here. There's no maybe. It's not a maybe proposition. Now, we we make promises all the time. And our promises are not certain because there are all kinds of contingencies that can come up. and, And we really may not have the ability to perform. We're limited in our ability. But God has no such limitations. The only limitations that God has are limitations that he puts upon himself. There are no unforeseen contingencies with God. And so many times you'll see uh, phrases in the scripture like Jesus used when he said, God is able. Uh, Jesus used that phrase often. For instance, in Matthew 9, 28, he said, Believe ye that I am able to do this? And he said, Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And conversely, he speaks of the uncertainty of man's ability. He said there are some who are unable to enter into the kingdom of God. Paul used it. He said, God is able to make all grace abound to you. He said, unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we think or ask. He said, he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And he said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So on and on we could go, and we could find many, many references where Paul says that God is able. Jude said that in in his little book, that God is able. The Apostle John said the very same, God is able. And so we have this certainty that God keeps his promises. So when Paul says, my God shall, there's the certainty of God's promise demonstrated because of his ability to perform. So who will do it? God will do it. So the promise of provision flows out of the character and the certainty of God. Now, the next question we have is, what will he do? And the answer to the question is, supply all your need. Now, in these hard times, I think that's a very comforting thought. In fact, if we compare our times to their times, and Paul says, God shall supply your need, that ought to bring us far greater comfort even than it brought to them, because Our times are nothing like their times. You know, we think it's really tough today, and that's mostly because we've turned all the things that we want into things that we think that we need, and so if we don't have all the wants, things are really hard on us. But the needs that they had in the first century were really born out of true hardship because they didn't lose their jobs because of the economy. They lost their jobs because they were believers in Jesus Christ. 
And they weren't hungry because they had to eat hot dogs instead of porterhouse. They were hungry because they didn't have anything to eat. And they, they weren't uh, poor because uh, their stock portfolios were down and the retirement funds had, had dried up. They weren't poor because of that. They were poor because of an adversarial class system where half of the people were enslaved to the other half. So we're talking largely about slave labor here. Now, if God was able to supply their needs under that kind of duress, you know what it ought to do to us? It ought to send us skipping and hopping down the street and just thanking the Lord every single day because if God could supply for them in such great duress and distress, certainly he can, doesn't have to reach very far into the storehouse to take care of us. But we read these things and we are stuck on the material. Uh, God does take care of the material But I think that Paul was very acutely aware of some greater needs that man has. What do we need? Well, I want to make you aware of a few needs that God does most certainly take care of. And these particular needs are far more necessary for you than your bank account. The first one is that God supplies faith. You know, I I can make a sermon out of each one of these, but I promise you I'm going to be brief on each of these. But God supplies faith. And that's something that you really need because you don't have it on your own. Faith, the Bible says, is God's gift. And the reason that it has to be God's gift because Scripture says we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We have no ability to come to God in faith. And yet the Bible also teaches that faith is the only way that we're going to receive the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness is appropriated to us by faith. We're justified upon the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which only comes to us received by faith. And so you can't get it any other way. You're spiritually dead. You could never be justified. You can't be sanctified. You can't be glorified. Consequently, you're forever doomed to a devil's hell. If not for this, that God gives that faith. Now, the material things... Material needs will never be as great as the need to be justified by God. And that's because starvation and deprivation, that only affects the physical material body. I mean, you're going to maybe have hardship for the three score and ten that you live on this earth, but when that's over, it's over. But what, what is not over is the eternal welfare of the soul. And without justification, the soul and body go into hell forever, and it will suffer forever. So the greatest need that any man has is salvation in Jesus Christ. And you're never going to get it without faith. So praise God for this. He supplies what we don't have and what we can't get. He's the one who gives us justifying faith. Then another thing that we need from God that we can't get on our own is that God supplies forgiveness. How can we be forgiven without God? We can't. Sin is the transgression of God's law, and it doesn't make any difference how long you live. You'll never change the fact that you're a sinner. And the Bible teaches that breaking God's law incurs a penalty. It incurs God's wrath, and in this case, the penalty is hell. But God gives forgiveness. Well, how do you get that forgiveness? You just say, well, well, God, you know, I'm sorry about things. And so in his compassion and his mercy, God just forgives people. And you know, there's a lot of teaching like that today. uh, That's pretty much all that amounts to. People do want to be forgiven. And they think that, well, if I show a little bit of remorse and, you know, say I'm sorry over it, then, then that's probably good enough. But the problem is that God does not arbitrarily forgive. 
God never sets his justice aside and pardons anyone based upon his mercy alone. God forgives only because satisfaction has been made, a penalty has been paid. And folks, that's why we call God such a gracious God, because what he did, he allowed that penalty to be paid by Jesus Christ. He allowed the suffering of the cross to be the thing that satisfies the penalty for us. Now, we justly deserved hell, but God sent his own son and let let him be the one who became sin for us. He became the sacrifice for sin so that we could be forgiven. Forgiveness never comes without a price, and Christ paid that price for it. Now, you didn't offer Christ. That's obvious, isn't it? We didn't offer him. The one who offered Christ was God. And so, therefore, God supplied the necessary ingredient for forgiveness. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Now, thirdly, God supplies something that we need. He supplies fellowship. Paul says, my God. And he says this again because God is not somewhere out there in the back 40 of the universe. But God supplies fellowship. And that's because he wants us to have this closeness and confidence that no matter where we are at any time, he's right there with us. Now, one of the ways that he... Uh, shows that to us is that he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. When you become a Christian, you have the presence of God right in your very heart, in your life. And so he dwells with us so we're never alone. And that's something that, you know, it's, it's the filling up of the emptiness that's in our soul. Now, I, I think that everybody here tonight that say that you can testify to this, that, that there is a completely different feeling that comes upon you when you're saved. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about an emotional feeling because salvation is not based upon your emotions. But there is something that you can tell is different because you have that feeling that you have been filled or fulfilled. And that comes by knowing Christ. And if you've never experienced that, I can't explain to you what it feels like. I mean, I can't really tell you exactly what that's like. But I know this, if you've experienced it, you know it, and you, and you felt it, and you feel the fellowship that you have with God. And so when you're a Christian, whenever you sin against God, you have that sense that you've lost the fellowship. And it's the very thing that you need and that you want. And so you desire that God would give that back to you. And that's one of the ways that God works with our sin. He takes that, he takes that feeling away that, we are, that we're close to God. And we know that something's missing. We've got to come back. And God draws us back to him. David felt that. When he sinned against God, he begged God for what? He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring me back into your fellowship again. And that's because there was emptiness in him when he didn't have that fellowship. Well, folks, the only one that can give you the fellowship is God. God grants that. You can't go get it. You can't go grab it. You can't pull it to yourself. God has to grant it to you. Now, fourthly, then, God supplies fortress. Now, perhaps you don't have an enemy that's waiting in the shadows at night uh, uh, trying to harm you, and there may not be a gang in your neighborhood that you're afraid of, and they're going to come knock down your door and kill you. You may not have those kinds of feelings, and maybe the reason that you don't is because God has already taken care of all the threats that are out there. And the reason that you're safe is because God knows what's out there, and he's watching over you. You know, I, I've explained to you before that when I, when I drive to church, or I get in the car, it can be a very scary thing. 
And I say that because I, I'll, I'll come from home here to the church and there are things that are going on. And there may be a million things that are going on through my mind. All the things that I have to deal with and all the people to deal with and certain events that are happening. And I'm thinking about that and I'm driving down the road and not aware of where I am at all. And I don't know how many times, probably countless times, that God has saved me from being in an accident because my mind is somewhere else thinking about other things. That's the kind of protection that God provides. But it's not only that. Because God knows also that there is spiritual warfare out there. There are, there are demons out there. there. There's the powers of darkness out there. And God has to protect us from it. The Scripture says that Satan is like a roaring lion. He's going about trying to destroy us. Without God's protection, Satan would take us and shake us like a rag doll and break us into pieces. There's not one of us that can stand against the power of the devil. We're not capable of resisting his influence. We have to have help with that. And so God becomes the shield and the buckler, and he defends against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And then the Word of God also tells us how that God protects our soul in another way. He says that, that the Father has us in His hand. Jesus says, I have you in my hand. Paul said in the book of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It never shall because God shall. God shall supply all our needs. And then fifthly, God supplies fortune. Now here we're going to bring it back to the material for just a moment because what we're reading here is the immediate context of Philippians 4.19 is the material. It's the material world. Paul makes the comments that he does be, because it's a response to an offering that was sent and that's material. Philippian people were human just like we are and so they thought in terms of, of the material just like we do. The scripture says though that God is the one who gives us the power to get wealth. We don't have that power on our own. And I would say that if you don't have wealth, then the reason very well could be that God has decided you don't need to have wealth and he's not going to give you wealth. And I don't mean by that that we stop striving and we stop working hard and trying to better ourselves. I don't mean that at all. But what I do mean is that we are not to pursue wealth in a consuming way. And there are many Christians that are consumed with having wealth. And the way that they try to achieve it is they take service away from God. They take time away from God. And so there are other things that are more important to them. Their church attendance suffers. Their tithes and their offerings suffers. Their, uh, the, the offerings are diminished because they go to work and they work and they work and they work and they're doing it to fill up the coffers to be used on their cells. Now, if God alone is the one who gives us the power to get wealth, and then you're going out there and you're trying to gain wealth by other means, by the self-effort and giving up service to God, you just need to remember who controls it all. God controls it all, and God can take it away as fast as it came. And it's really an amazing thing when you think about it, how fast that wealth can be wiped out. And there are people that have planned ever so carefully for years, building up the retirement and with a flip of a switch just like that, it can all be gone. You know, there are lots of folks right here in California that had all their hope and their confidence in the real estate market. They kept seeing the big gains that were coming, and very quickly, you know, uh, the, it was mounting up there, and people doubling their money in the housing market and so forth, and people investing in that. And how long did it take for it all to get wiped out? didn't take very long, did it? 
And there are lots, there may be some of you, I don't know, maybe you're sitting on an upside-down mortgage right now. And you, and you thought, well, that could never be possible. And it only goes to show, and I'm sure there's no one here that's guilty of this, but it shows for many people that if you put your faith and your confidence and your trust in those kinds of things, it's in the wrong thing because very quickly it can be taken away. Now, let me make a very important point regarding that. When your stockbroker calls, your real estate agent calls, and they make all of their promises, you just have to remember that the promise that they make is only as good as human performance. They can only do what man can control. And if your hope and your confidence is in those things, and your hope is that they have some greater ability than they really do have, and you have confidence in that, then you can't be helped. Uh, You've got your confidence in the wrong thing. But also, the reliance of any promise that we have in the Bible is only as good as the performance of the one who makes the promise. And so now you consider God as Paul considered God, and then you understand why he makes that statement, my God shall supply all your need. Now let's go on to question number three. Question three is, where will he get it? God will supply, but where does he get it? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory. Now, there's a little bit of difference in commentators' opinions concerning that statement, riches in glory. Uh, Some say that glory was intended to modify supply. And so as we read this, we would read it that God will gloriously supply. Others say that this actually refers to Christ. And it means that God's supply is done by a glorious method. And still others say that what he means here is that God keeps on supplying, that there is an eternal supply, and God keeps on from now on into eternity supplying us. And I think all of those interpretations have merit. All of them convey truth. Uh, God supplies gloriously in abundance. He supplies by an uncommon method that's God's and God's alone. And he does promise us that he's going to continue to help us and take care of us all the way through eternity. So where does God get what we need? Well, he gets it, first of all, from the abundance of his wealth. I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on that. And if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you you know this, uh, that God owns everything. Everything is at God's disposal. God never begs, borrows, pleads for anything because he has it all. The psalmist said, the earth is full of the riches of God. Now, I think more importantly is to know that God has it all, but God is also willing to share it. Now, the fact that he has wealth, that's not in question. So the greatest thing about this is, with all the great resources that God has, God is willing to share it with us. Now, notice also, the Scripture says here, according to his riches in glory. Now, it would have been different if Paul had said, God will supply out of his riches. Now, that would mean that God could give us a pittance, or or God could just give us a very small measured amount. For example, take somebody as rich as Bill Gates. If if he sees a homeless man on the street and he hands him a $100 bill, well, then he's given out of his riches. But this is much more significant than that, because here it says that God gives according to his riches. So here's the example that we'd really have. That is, if, if I have $10 million and I give you $5 million, then I've given according to my riches. You see what I'm saying there? It's, a, it's 
commensurate. The gift that I give is commensurate with what I actually have. And that's how God promises to give. And the Bible even calls this an inheritance. The idea is that what God has also belongs to us. We inherit that by our adoption into God's family. And then where else does he get it or where does he get it? He gets it from his inexhaustible supply. What God has is never going to run out. You know, I don't know how many children God has. And we're talking about inheritance. I don't know how many children that God has. Um, Some people say, well, because uh, God elects people to salvation, that he has very few. And the greater part of the human race will die and go to hell. Now, that's, of course, the wrong way to teach that. But there are some people who say that. Uh, Spurgeon had an interesting comment on it. He said, or he believed that the greater number of the human race would actually be saved. Now, I tend to look at how things are going on in in Sonoma County and not, are not really too convinced that the greater part of the human race will be saved. And, and I don't see really, quite frankly, a lot of evidence for that in so-called Christian churches today because I think there are a lot of people in churches that have no idea what salvation is about. They don't understand salvation. But regardless of how many children God has, God is not going to run out of provision. Now, maybe Spurgeon is right. And if he is, maybe somebody will wonder, well, if there's so many people that are going to be saved, then my share of the inheritance is going to be so small. What will I be able to claim? You never have to worry about that because God has a well that never runs dry. It's bottomless. You you drain out some of his provision, and he keeps coming back and filling it back up. Now, it's like that widow of Zarephath we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Now, she was taking meal out of her barrel, and every time she went back, there was still meal there. And she was taking oil out of the cruise, and no matter how how much she took out when she went back, there was always oil in the cruise. And that's because she trusted God. She gave what God said to give. Now, that's why I say that you really don't have to worry about what God supplies. You don't have to worry about storing it up and saving things up as if you're going to run out. You just give back to God, and God keeps filling it back up. Now, a good case in point is the way that God taught Israel to trust him when they were wandering in the wilderness. You remember the story of how uh, God sent the manna? And, and God said to Israel, he said, now here's what you do. You go out there and you see the manna on the ground, and you go out and you gather it up. But what I don't want you to do, I don't want you to gather any more than you can eat for one day. And the only time that they could gather more was that the next day was the Sabbath, so they wouldn't have to gather on the Sabbath. Well, there were some of the people who didn't believe that, didn't listen to what Moses uh, said when God told them this. And so they went out and they started collecting more because they were afraid that the manna wouldn't be there, as God said. And so they hoarded it up and they stored it. And then the next day, when they went to get into their little storehouse of manna, they found out that it was filled with worms and it stank. Now, there's one thing that God was trying to teach them there, and that is you must trust God every single day for your provision. You don't have to worry about what's way out there in the future. God supplies day by day, and so when you go out there, the manna will be there, and it will be there, and it will be there, and it will be there. And for the children of Israel, it was there for 40 years until they got into the promised land, and they didn't need it anymore. Now they were in the place that, what? Land flowing with milk and honey. What do they need manna for? See, God's going to give us something better. So we have folks that store things up, and we're afraid that we have to do that because we're going to live out of that store. 
And so we're, we're going to accumulate whatever it is that we can accumulate. We're not going to give too much of it away because if we do, we think that our storehouse is going to whittle itself down and eventually we'll empty what we have. And there's the problem. And that's we become dependent on the wrong store. Start living out a God store and you never run out. You just keep going back and God has more provision. Now we have our fourth question then. The fourth question on this text is how will he do it? What is God's methodology? And I think this is really the best part of all four questions. What is God's methodology? But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, there's the answer to our question, by Christ Jesus. And you know, that's always the answer with God. Nothing ever comes to anyone except it is by Christ Jesus. It's for Christ's sake that God has any dealings with us at all. You understand this, that, that if not for Christ, God would not consider you any more than an ant. Now, God takes care of the ants, but how many of us want to be on the level with, of an ant with God? We're supplied these things by, by, by Christ. So it's always this, first of all, by the Savior. Always by the Savior. Now, if you go and look at Paul's writings... If you just took some time to see how many times he says this, by Christ, in Christ, in him. Let me, let's just do a little exercise here. I want you to turn your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians chapter 1, just a few pages back from where we are in Philippians. And if you have a pencil or a pen, uh, you might want to do this. If you like to write in your Bible, if you don't like to write in your Bible, maybe you want to do it anyway because it's a good demonstration. But let's look in Ephesians chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse number 3. And what I want you to do is underline some things. And I'll tell you what to underline. Then we'll look at this, uh, this page after we get finished reading these few verses. But Ephesians chapter 1, let's start at verse number 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now you want to underline in Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him, and you can underline that, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. You can underline by Jesus Christ. To himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You underline that. Verse number 7, in whom, underline that. We have redemption through his blood, underline that. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, and we underline in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And we underline that. Verse number 11, in whom, you can underline that, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. And we underline that. Now you look down that page and see all those underlines and everything that comes in that whole list comes in Christ, by Christ, for him, through his blood. And folks, that tells us that anybody who ever tries to go around Christ will never find favor with God. And you know the Bible even tells us that to attempt to go to God without Christ is blasphemy. 
In fact, God says that if you try to do something like that, then you are actually trampling under your feet the blood of Jesus Christ. Never think that the sacrifice of Christ is unimportant enough that you could go around it and that you could come to God without Jesus Christ. It simply does not happen. All things come to us because of Christ, on the account of Christ. And you need to know this as well, that it's also on the account of Christ that God condemns sinners to hell. Here's what Jesus said in John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So nobody ever gets to God, and nobody ever gets anything from God, except through Jesus Christ. How will he do it? Well, the next part. How will he do it? By his signature. And there's one commentator who calls God's supply a note that is drawn on the bank of faith. Now, on the back side of your listening sheet, we're going to diagram this a little bit here as we close the message tonight. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now, this is the bank of faith. Now, we'll just fill in these blanks here. My God, that's the name of the banker. My God shall supply, and that's God's promise to pay. All your need, that's the value of the note. According to his riches, that's the capital in the bank. According to his riches. In glory, that is the address of the bank. By Jesus Christ. And folks, that is the signature on the note. Without which, the note is worthless. You see, we can have everything in place. But if you don't have somebody to sign the note, it's worthless. See, it all comes down to this. You have nothing without him. So your faith in God's provision is only as good and as trustworthy as the one that you have your faith in. And when you know who he is, Philippians 4.19 is great comfort. It doesn't matter how tough things get. If you know him, this verse is great comfort to you. And let me finish then with one more scripture. And and perhaps this really should be more meaningful to you now by looking at Philippians 4.19. But Paul says in Romans 8.32, He that spared not his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And what Paul is trying to point out there is that God gave his very best. His very best was his own son. The very best that came out of God's treasure was his own son, Jesus Christ. And if God was willing to give him, then what lesser thing would he ever fail to give us? Spiritually and materially, we have all things in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great verse of Scripture that we've read and how it thrills our heart to know that you have made such a, such a real promise, such a demonstrated promise. Lord, all we need to do is come to you in faith and ask for it. And we know, Lord, that you will supply. We're so thankful that we are your children I just ask, Lord, that you would uh, just bless our hearts and, and give us the confidence that we need, the security that is there. Just help us to realize that it's there. Thank you for those who have come out tonight. Thank you especially for, for Ricky, who's uh, become a member of the church tonight. Uh, we pray that you bless the, 
uh, Brother Victor, and as he goes to the doctor and you take care of his need, Lord, we just know you're, you're the great God and you, you, you have it all in your control. We thank you for that. Bless as we sing tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.